us. He says, I have no greater joy than to know that my children are walking in truth. So Lord, we think of your word and it says that your word is such that it brings light to the eyes, it revives the soul, it makes wise the simple, it brings joy to the heart. And so God, we pray through your spirit that you would do such a work of joy increase into the hearts of these children in this place. God, we pray that you would speak through the teachers and that, God, you would meet us as well, that you would open deaf ears, open blind eyes, soften calloused hearts, that we might see your glory and that we might be conformed to Jesus. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Today we continue in our series on the epistle to the Philippians, the, the epistle of joy that, uh, that Paul has been writing to this young church. You know, we heard from the scripture reading, by the way, that in, Paul, in Jesus' prayer to his disciples that he prays that their joy would be full. Uh, and it's a fight for joy. We've talked about what joy is. We've talked that Joy is the settled assurance that God is in control of all the details of life, the quiet confidence that ultimately everything is going to be all right, and and the determined choice to praise God in every situation. More succinctly, we have said that joy is a continuous, defiant, nevertheless hope in Christ. Why? Because biblical joy is not based within oneself or one's circumstances, Biblical joy rests on and in Jesus Christ alone. He is the good news of great joy that has come into the world. Joy exists because Christ exists, and because Christ exists, joy is never threatened, can never be diminished or dismissed. And so Paul can charge believers, as he does in our passage today, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Yet such joy gets challenged by such a tragic event that's taken place this week in Charleston, South Carolina. Like many of you, I was wakened on Thursday morning with that shocking news to hear about this young, deranged white man who walked into the Emmanuel Amy Church received and welcomed to that Bible study prayer meeting and after sitting there for an hour, took out his 45 caliber Glock and shot the pastor, senator, the esteemed uh, Reverend Clementa Pickney and eight other attenders, faithful tenders in what's been called an unfathomable, indescribable hate crime and an act of racial terrorism. Now, how is it that Paul can say rejoice in the Lord always in the face of such grief? How does one persevere and prevail in joy in the face of such unspeakable heartache and loss? Really, is Paul serious when he says those words? Well, let's consider this statement beginning in Paul's last chapter in Philippi, chapter 4, to see if we can find some answers. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, 
Stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Odia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. On Friday morning, I heard a news reporter on NPR talk about the prayer worship service at Emmanuel Amy Church just 24 hours after that tragic event. The news reporter said that the people in the church were clapping their hands and singing hymns. And it was clear that the reporter was surprised by this expression of joy after such a recent tragic event. How could these people, in the face of such a horrible loss, find themselves clapping and singing? Well, maybe one clue is in the song the reporter noted that they were singing, My Hope is built on nothing less but Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. And then the second verse, when darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. The third verse, his oath, his covenant, his blood supports me in the whelming flood, when all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand, all other ground is sinking sand. Clearly, uh, these worshipers at Emmanuel Amy Church, these were not just mere words. They knew about the anchor in the stormy gale. They had weathered many storms before. They knew that even when the deep blinding darkness threatened to veil Christ's face, he was there as their unshakable solid rock. They knew all other ground, all foundations, all other earthly props and apparent securities were sinking, saying, only on Christ is the rock solid. Only on Christ can we stand. Dr. Robert Kellerman writes about this in his book, Beyond Suffering, Embracing the Legacy of African-American Soul Care and Spiritual Direction. He writes in a chapter about a sorrowful joy. He said, enslaved African-Americans holistically integrated sustaining and healing because they first holistically experienced sorrow and joy. 
the well-known slave spiritual, nobody knows the trouble I see, nobody knows like Jesus, nobody knows the trouble I see, glory, hallelujah, illustrates this. And Calvin said a slave who was initially puzzled by the tone of joyful sadness that echoed and re-echoed in spirituals eloquently explained this paradox. The old meeting house caught on fire. The spirit was there. Every heart was beating in unison as we turned our minds to God to tell him of our sorrows here below. God saw our need and came to us. I used to wonder what made people shout, but now I don't. There is a joy on the inside, and it wells up so strong that we can't keep still. It is a fire in the bones. Anytime that fire touches a man, he will jump. What we and the world has witnessed this week at Emmanuel AME was an authentic living witness of this exhortation of Paul's words, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. The Apostle Paul, he ends this section by encouraging the Philippians to practice and to put in, to, to, to do what they have witnessed in his own personal life. But we have the personal life presently of this church in Charleston. God wants you and I as beloved children to persevere and to prevail in joy in this continuous, defiant, nevertheless hope in Christ. But there are many forces that will seek to attack and thwart such joy. Having joy and hope in the face of hardship and losses is not a natural thing. It is a supernatural thing event. It cannot be conjured up. It will not work for us to sing or to say, don't worry, be happy over and over again. Joy is a fruit of the Spirit along with peace. Such joy is something we need to cultivate, to protect, to promote, and to encourage in our midst. And here Paul helps us and gives us three charges, three encouragements. There's three kind of pithy exhortations, bullet points uh, as he finally lands this letter, and he shows us that standing firm in prevailing joy demands that we be a people in prevailing unity, that we continue to be a people in prevailing prayer, and that we continue to be a people that prevail in thinking well. Now, some might think that, you know, Paul is this apostle who's kind of living in an ivory tower somewhere, postulating all these wonderful spiritual encouragements in a comfortable uh, context. But as Dick Lucas of St. Helens mentioned, Paul is in chains in a Roman prison. He doesn't know whether he will live or die. There are in, immature, self-promoting rival preachers outside uh, who are making a nuisance. He gets the news that the Philippians are in a hard time. The young church is full of alarm and anxiety. They feel the threat of the Judaizers who are breathing down their necks. Uh, there are enemies of the cross that make him weep. Uh, there's a concern for Aphrodite, uh, whose health was failing. And two fine Christian women were at each other's throats. Uh, and Paul says, rejoice. Uh, he is not saying just rejoice, however. He is saying rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice. He's not saying just have joy, just be happy. But he's saying rejoice in the Lord. And so 
Paul exhorts the Philippians over a dozen times in this epistle to be joyful. And joy here is joy in affliction. He is calling them to a joy that is out of the experience of the cross. 2 Corinthians 8 is a cross reference out of the most severe trial. Their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. And so Paul is saying that in circumstances and all such circumstances, there is cause and reason for a great joy. Why? Because they believe that Christ lives, that Christ came, that Christ died, that Christ rose again, that Christ ascended, he reigns on high, and that he is in charge, and that because he loves and is with his people, uh, they can have this unremitting joy. So rejoice in the Lord. There is never a time that we can't rejoice in the Lord. And again, Paul says, how we persevere, persevering in unity. And so he entreats Yodia or Odia, and I entreat Syntyche to grow in the Lord. He opens his passage with this call to unity between these two women leaders. And by the way, uh, while he uses their names uh, to highlight this is a pretty radical thing uh, in this particular time. These were two leading women in the church. And Paul is saying to these women publicly to, to agree in the Lord. But he's acknowledging that these are co-workers. These are esteemed women. Uh, they, they have worked in labor together for the gospel. What's interesting here is that he calls them to take responsibility for their differences. Agree in the Lord. Settle your differences you are responsible for your relational uh, distance and this breakdown. And he doesn't really talk about what the disagreement is. There's no mention exactly what it was that they had a falling out over. But there is a continual call to work it out, to agree. Uh, obviously, it's not a matter of, of essential doctrinal truth, because Paul would have definitely addressed that. But it had to be some secondary matter that they had uh, a broken relationship over. And it wasn't so much about the particular issue that he was concerned about. He was concerned about a broken fellowship that brought division in the body. And for Paul, it was a scandal that Christians were not united. Divisions reveal a serious flaw in the church. Paul sees disunity as a solemn and disastrous thing, contrary to the gospel witness. And it wasn't a matter who was right in this context and who was wrong. He wasn't like having that. He, he basically was saying, agree. And he, but he said, agree in the Lord. Agree in the Lord. He's basically saying, please recognize that Jesus is in your midst. He has the resolution. The church should be marked however, by mutual helpfulness, because sometimes we get stuck. Sometimes we can't see why we are so fixated on a particular thing that irritates someone else, and we need help. Somebody help. I need help a lot. And so he says to this person, whoever this true yoke fellow or true companion, whoever this person is, to come and, and, and help these women uh, resolve their differences. And so we find that there's this call to be a church that pursues and protects unity. 
Uh, this past uh, last week was a, a wonderful moment for our church at large. Uh, we are part of the what's been called the Presbyterian Church in America. We don't really make a big deal that about being Presbyterians or that we're part of a larger body. But the reality is, is that this is one way we express uh, our call to be united to the highest degree we can with other common believers. And so we're part of this denomination. And last week, uh, there was a resolution that was presented uh, for repentance and acknowledgement uh, concerning our, our distance from being part of the civil rights movement, that we were on the wrong side. And so there was a movement of repentance uh, that took place. And what's happening is that this resolution is going to be worked through all the churches and the whole denomination over this course of this next year. But some of the brothers said, well, I don't think there's ever a time that it's not right to confess our sins. And so there was this large prayer meeting that took place on Thursday night, and men would come up to the phones, and some were running to the phone to the microphones in order to confess their sins, and some were kneeling, and some were laying on their face before God. And uh, one brother in the midst, Dr. Lee, Lee Croy, said, I grew up Pentecostal, but, it, but that is the most intense move of the Spirit I've ever felt in my life. The presence of the Spirit was palpable as if the holy weight was pressing down on me. And so it was a great uh, presentation of the body of Christ uh, working through a call to unity and repenting for past sins. And I can tell you that when the Spirit of God works in a united body for such, uh, there is a lot of power and there's, there's revival that has taken place. Um, so this was, uh, I think there's a couple pictures. This is a picture of some of the guys coming to the mic, basically praying and asking for repentance. And then this next picture is a slide. Uh, Pastor stands in here. This is uh, the inauguration of the African-American uh, uh, fellowship, uh, Presbyterian fellowship that is going to walk alongside. These are brothers in, in the body here in the Presbyterian Church in America are going to encourage how best what repentance looks like for the larger body. So these are things that you should just be encouraged about. But work at unity. You know, one of the things that this passage reminds us is how vital unity is. And this has been a major theme in the book of Philippians. Uh, contend as one man uh, uh, together in the Lord. So if you feel wounded by an action of someone, you have a biblical calling to engage that person. To deal with that offense. Matthew 18 says, If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. Do it privately. Do it personally. If he listens to you and you've won him, great. If not, you might need to bring a third party in, Matthew 18 says. The point is, resolve your differences. Deal with offenses. But what happens if you don't, you're not the one that feels offended, but that you know somebody's angry with you? Well, Matthew 5 tells us, uh, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go be reconciled to your brother and come and offer your gift. That's amazing. That means that in, in reference to how God looks at worshipers, if you have a broken relationship with someone, your worship is, is broken. And the call in Matthew 5 is deal with your broken relationship. If you know someone's got an offense against you, you need to take charge immediately. You can't really worship God with a pure heart 
without addressing those offenses. So everybody is responsible. And if you are a third party outside and you see that there's a broken relationship somewhere, you have a responsibility to engage that person as well. Uh, the scriptures encourage us not to allow a root of bitterness. See that no one misses the grace of God, Hebrews 12 says, and that no, one, no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. So every single person in this body who is claiming Christ has a responsibility to protect, to guard, and to engage, uh, and to promote unity, and to engage where disunity and division exists. That's, listen, unity building is hard work. It's hard work because a lot of times we just don't like to be around people. And they're annoying. And we just like to get away from them. You know, it's easier, isn't it? I mean, there are people you just don't like. And you don't get along with them. And, you know, this, uh, this opening passage is interesting. Paul says, Therefore, brothers or sisters, uh, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, uh, Stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I'm thinking, wow, that's a lot of affections in that passage. And I'm thinking, I just don't feel all that for a lot of you folks. I'm not feeling it. I'm not feeling that, you know. And I say, well, what's the problem here? Well, the problem is me. And there's some people that you have that you just don't feel that. And you know what? That's, ex you know, that's kind of called the affection meter check. You know, where's my affection level for this brother or sister? You know, you kind of check, say, well, if my affection meter is really low, that's a good point to say, you know, I think I need to, like, first confess my own sin because there's something junk in my life that i got some pride going on, and then figure out how to engage in order to, and to just start praying, Lord Jesus, give me the affections that you have for this person so that I can engage them and, and love them. So anyhow, unity Guarding unity, promoting unity is so critical to promoting joy. You can't really sustain that joy without unity. And then the second thing is that he talks about is uh, prayer, uh, prevailing in prayer. Now this verse, as I started thinking about this verse, I can't really think of another verse that I think about more frequently in all of Scripture than this verse because I feel anxious a lot of times. Does anybody come to this verse fairly frequently in this house? Is this a verse that you kind of like go to? This is a go-to verse for me. Uh, what's the go-to? Well, every time you're anxious, Paul tells us what to do with it. You know, be anxious about nothing, but in everything, with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, uh, let your request be known to God and the God of peace who surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Now, you know, there's power in that. You know, I realize that some of us are struggling with certain chemical issues that anxiety is even heightened. Um, and, you know, we need to really encourage each other. But this passage is true strength. When you go to God and you pray out your anxieties, this passage is saying that Jesus is going to meet you. He's going to be there. And the peace of God is going to be a sentinel. It's a, it's a guard over your, over your life. And it will bring you peace. And so it is something that we've got to practice. Uh, Paul Miller 
who wrote a book on uh, the praying life, says prayer is so hard that most of us simply do not pray unless an illness or a public set or a public setting such as saying grace at a meal demands it. Because of prayerlessness, our lives are often marked by fear, anxiety, joylessness, and cynicism. And this is what he said. He says, instead of fighting anxiety, we can use it as a springboard to bending our hearts to God. Instead of trying to suppress anxiety, manage it, or smother it with pleasure, we can turn our anxiety toward God. When we do that, we'll discover that we've slipped into continuous praying. And I think uh, anxiety is just one uh, means, a uh, nudge for us to reconnect with God. Uh, Jesus was very clear, you know, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust uh, in God, trust also in me. And he talks about in Matthew uh, 11 that, uh, you know, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. And so we're called, and Christ calls us to come to him. The scriptures continue to tell us to pour out our hearts to him. Uh, cast all your cares upon him because he, what, cares for you. It's casting. It's, it's really just unleashing. It's not, uh, it's not a clean thing. It's just a messy. You're just laying it out. And he is there because he loves you. And so bringing our anxieties before him is critical uh, for peace and it's critical for sustained joy. But lastly, uh, he calls us to prevail, prevail in thinking well. And so he says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, uh, anything is excellent, any worthy of praise, think, ponder, give proper weight and value to these things. So Paul is praying that we would be a people of right thinking, that we would guard what we think about. Uh, because Paul knows that right thinking impacts our actions. It impacts our hearts. It impacts our love. He prays at the beginning of the letter of Philippi, my prayer is that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ Jesus. And so his prayer, our love will abound more and more, but it's through knowledge and depth of insight, how we think. And so Paul is very concerned about the thinking and the focus of people, of, of the believer's hearts. It discerns not just half-truths from error, or not just truth from error, but half-truths and partial truths. We want to be a people that can discern those differences. Hebrews 5 says, But solid food is for the mature who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. He says in another place, test everything or examine, prove, uh, scrutinize. And so this passage really is a charge for us to be concerned about what we bring into our hearts and into our minds. Uh, the, there's a verse in Proverbs 4, it says, above all else, guard your hearts because it's the wellspring of life. And so uh, we're called uh, to do that. I, my son, uh, you know, one of the things that's really helpful to kind of focus your heart on the good and the excellence is actually the memorization and the meditation on Scripture. You know, uh, 
The psalmist says, I've hid your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Uh, my son, uh, Calvin, he's experienced uh, some significant anxiety. He's experienced the challenges of unemployment and, and being married and being unemployed. And I mean, there's a lot of anxiety that comes with that. And by God's grace, he, he has a job. But, but one of the things that Calvin has done uh, is that he's been memorizing Scripture. And he told me recently that he's finished memorizing the first four chapters of Hebrews. Now, I can't tell you as a dad, I, I, I feel like I should step down from even being a, on this preacher. If my son is, well, where am I, you know? This is not, don't compare yourself with any. My son has friend, a friend at his wedding that has memorized the entire epistle of Romans. So my son probably feels like, uh, you know, a, a slacker. But I said, well, what, you know, I asked him, I said, you know, as you've memorized all of this scripture, says, is there certain things that, you know, come to surface more? And he says, oh, yeah. And uh, he mentioned that one of the passages in those first four chapters. He says, although he was a son, he learned obedience by what he suffered. And, of course, that passage is talking about Jesus, that Jesus learned obedience by what he suffered. And that has brought great comfort and strength to Calvin. Uh, but what an encouragement for me as a dad. I mean, that, what excellence could you... I mean, that's the most excellent thing, is to put God's word into your heart. But, you know, the uh, scriptures tell us in Psalm 19 that, you know, the heavens declare the glories of God. Uh, and so creation, God is speaking uh, about his majesty and his power and dominion and his beauty and his excellence. And so uh, this uh, last, uh, May the 31st was Marie and I's 35th year wedding anniversary. And uh, this is a mark. And so, you know, about, I don't know, six, eight months ago, we started thinking about it. And Maria said, I want to go to Alaska. Now, men... If you make the 35th year wedding and your wife says, I want to go to Alaska, would you say, yes, love, let's go to Alaska? It really wasn't on my hit list or whatever, but I am really glad that I went. So we went to Alaska, and I, the night before I left, it was like I was up to like 12 o'clock with a hard a session meeting of <laughs> And uh, there was a lot of things that were kind of unresolved, and I was just kind of feeling pretty heavy. But when, once I got into uh, the Alaska Territory, I just kind of got swallowed up in God's big majesty and beauty and splendor. And this is just, so this is one of the glaciers. Uh, it's called the Mendenhall Glacier. It's 12 miles long. Uh, they're off to the right. Uh, that's, that's not my picture, but here's my picture. Uh, a little closer up is not as clear, but uh, so that's the glacier. But off to the to the right is a little is a waterfall. So it just looks like a little waterfalls, okay? But I just wanted to do, I'm going to do a close up on that. Do you see that? Those are people down there uh, on the bottom. So that kind of gives you perspective how massive this whole thing is. And we we didn't. We weren't able, we didn't have time to get there. If you ever go to the Mendenhall Glacier, which is near uh, the city of uh, Juneau, uh, that would be a great experience to see this rushing pure water coming down off this mountain. Um, but 
I think just by being in Alaska, I just got swallowed up in the God's big picture, the big creation, the glory. You know, we need to spend time just acknowledging and sensing God's beauty and his majesty. It's all around. His knowledge shouts. His beauty shouts at us. And so that um, is uh, something to, to be encouraged. The other thing that took place in this last month, the last time since I was last here to preach, I have married off two of my daughters. Two. My daughter number two. And, uh, and so it was Melissa and, and Leif. Uh, that was on May the 24th. And, uh, and Leif, and by the way, Leif is a great son-in-law. He, uh, this was like a Jacob uh, and uh, Rachel story. He, like, he pursued her for eight years. Like, she was kind of distant, you know. But ultimately, his perseverance won her heart. And uh, she, she's, uh, they're just in love, and, and it's a wonderful thing. But then, then on uh, June the 8th, the day after we got back from Alaska, my other daughter, Caroline, uh, and her new husband, Carlos, Carlos Abru Mendoza, he's from Spain, uh, got married. And so it's been quite a marriage. And then uh, the, that following week, uh, it was Heather Johnson and, uh, and Keith Rice got married. Anyhow, I was just in one marriage after the next. My daughters are getting married, people in the church. And I, I did all those marriages. You know, I'd walk my daughters up, and I'd turn around, and I'd perform the... It was weird, kind of, but it was, it was all right. <laughs> One of the things about marrying folks is the experience in the wedding itself. And being a pastor, I get to see very closely the joy of the groom as the bride walks into that space. And, uh, and to see the father... Uh, there with the bride, giving the bride to the groom. And I have to tell you that uh, every time I do one of these marriages, uh, the, the impression that there's a greater reality of grace and joy, a destiny that we are all moving towards just becomes more and more profound to me. The reality that God the Father gave up his only son to have a pure bride brought to himself, and we are this bride that God is sanctifying. It is just an amazing thing. Uh, and here's the deal. Your unity, your prayerfulness, your thinking well, really is anchored on how well you know God's love for you. Today is Father's Day, you know. A lot of us have had great dads. Some of us have had great dads and we're present. Some of us are, are you know, feeling the loss of a dad, maybe because of, of, of death. Others of us may have had distant dads, absent dads. Some of us have had abusive dads. None of us have had perfect dads. But you need to recognize that in Christ you have this unbelievable perfect father who is crazy mad in love with you. Now, how, how do you know that? How, how do you, well, Jesus tells us that. You know, Jesus tells us in you know, Luke 15 about this, the repenting son whose father is looking at the horizon, waiting for his son, and when he sees him, he's running, a father running 
to his humble, repenting son. This is the father that runs to you in your repentance. Uh, This is the affections of God the Father for you. And so when Paul says, you know, my brothers and my sisters whom I long for and love, my joy and my crown, you know, how is he saying that? He's, He's entering into the affections of Christ. He's entering into the affections of God the Father. God the Father, God the Son loves you, longs for you, You are his joy and crown, and as you live in that love, as you live within that embrace, your joy rises and is sustained, and you will work for unity, and you will pray your anxieties, and you will think well thoughts. Let's continue to be such a people. Let's pray. Lord God, we are grateful that you give us a passage like this to remind us of where our joy is. Lord, it is not in ourselves. It is the joy in the Lord. Uh, and God, we pray that we would be a people that, that treasure that and protect and promote it, that God, we would be careful with one another in our thoughts, that we would pursue unity, that we would encourage unity among others, that God, you would allow us to go quickly to you when we feel fearful, fretful, anxious, that, God, we would not live in that anxiety, but that we would fight that fight for joy. And that, God, you would help us to, to think well. That, God, we would, we would know how to repent well. And that, God, we would live in your love. God, do that uh, in our lives for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us stand together.